You're listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gaston Podcast. Today's message from Pastor Colt Hudson is part of our current sermon series through the Gospel of John. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you. Thanks for listening. Well, amen. It is so good to be with you here today and to continue our series in the Gospel of John. And so I would invite you to go ahead and be turning in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. Again, that is John chapter 2 verses 13 through 25, and today we're going to look at a message that is called Love for the Church. And uh, just given the time of year in which we find ourselves, it is a a natural thing to think about uh, Valentine's Day, and uh, it was just ever cemented in my mind this morning as the uh, kids from the preschool Sunday school came by and brought me a little Valentine's Day card, Uh, and uh, man, what an encouragement that is. But uh, this week, as always, you know, there's, there's funny things floating around on social media. And one of the things that I came across this week is one that I've seen before, but it was uh, pictures of what they called Solomonic Valentine's cards. Uh, if you've never heard of these, what these are is these are little Valentine's cards that have sayings from Solomon in the book of uh, Song of Solomon. And uh, they've made them into cute little Valentines. And these are the way that they go. The first one says, Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. The second one says, Thy nose is as the tower of Lebanon, which looketh toward Damascus. And my personal favorite, Thy belly is like a heap of wheat set about by lilies. Uh, we look at these things, and uh, naturally, they're pretty funny little cards that are uh, from that description. And, and naturally, I think the way that we would describe our Valentine has changed a little bit uh, over the years. But the reason that Valentine's Day is commemorated is because Valentine died as a martyr. Now, there are legends that he died for performing Christian marriages when they were made illegal by the government of the age. And uh, there are other legends that he was sentenced to death, and his last card said, From your Valentine. And both of those would be kind of origin stories for why the holiday exists as it does. But the common denominator and the thing that we know from history is that Valentine died for his belief in Christ, his refusal to deny Christ, and his commitment to follow Christ's ways. We focus so much on Valentine's Day and on getting our significant others something good to show them that we love them. But within the theme of love, of course, we should love our spouses and such, but we should also have a deep and abiding love for God's house. And I think about the idea of of being called to love the church quite a bit. Um, I say this all the time. Uh, Rose and I, we got in the car, for instance, last night, and uh, as we were leaving the Valentine's banquet, just like uh, whenever we drive past the church, we both say, I love our church. And some of you have, have probably said a statement like that before, too. Oh, I love our church. And when we say that, what what I'm saying at least is that we love the people of this church, we love the ministry of this church, the community that it's in, the commitments we have, and the future that we have serving God together. But today I would like to show you some ways from Jesus' example that we can love our church well. So let's look at the text. Again, that's John 2, verses 13 through 25. And uh, I'll be reading from the ESV. You follow along in your translation. Verse 13, it says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. 
And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you today, and Lord, we come thanking you for this opportunity and this time. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and and for the reasoning behind why we gather together today. Lord, to worship you for who you are, your goodness and your majesty, Lord, your holiness and your character. Father, we pray that as we look into your word today, you would reveal more of yourself to us, that we might worship you more fully. Father, we pray that today in this place you would just speak through me, Lord, move me out of the way. But Father, proclaim your message to your people. Lord, help us to be a people who truly love your church. Father, who love this community. Lord, most of all, let us love you better. Show us how today, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so far in this series uh, through the Gospel of John, we have uh, covered some, the, the history of John the Baptist. We've seen that Jesus has called his disciples. And last week, we looked at the miracle at the wedding at Cana. We talked about how this is a miracle of conversion and uh, about how Jesus truly changes everything. This week, we are looking at this account where now Jesus has moved on from this wedding. And now, if you'll remember where we were last week at the end, it talked about him uh, going over to Capernaum and they stayed there for a few days. Well, now the Passover is at hand. And so during the Passover, uh, it was customary of the Jews for them to go to Jerusalem. And so we see that Jesus also follows this. He goes to Jerusalem. One commentator said that as many as 2.25 million Jews would have been in Jerusalem at the time when Jesus went. And we think about that, that is a very large amount of people. It's also not counting or taking into consideration all of the other people who would have been in Jerusalem at that time. And so as we think about the number of people who were there, it would have been a particularly busy time to be in Jerusalem. Jesus was there, and and each of these Jews, they would have traveled from near and far to get there with the purpose of going to the temple to worship and observing the feast. Now, everyone who went to the temple would have needed a sacrifice and would have had to pay the temple tax. To this day, the Jews charge membership fees to be in their synagogues. Uh, Something you may not know, but they, they have this idea of a temple tithe that would have needed to be paid. And in those days, they needed the sacrifice and they needed to be able to go to the bank or like we would go to the ATM, so to speak, to change out their money to pay that temple tax. In our passage, we see that Jesus displays this great zeal and this great passion for the church. And really, what we need to understand is that we too should be passionate about our church and what God has called us to do. We should be zealous to see our church following God's will, and we should love it. 
Well, how do we love the church based on Jesus' example? I want to show you three ways that we can do that uh, and three examples that he shows us from his actions in today's passage. The first one is that we need to recognize wickedness when it seeps into God's house. We see this in verse 14. Jesus here, he goes into the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers. Jesus here is very clear to tell us that he goes into the temple. And it's there where he sees all the people selling the sacrifices that people would have need. Again, if you're traveling from a long distance, uh, especially in those days, you might not want to bring an oxen or a sheep or whatever else it is that you need with you. So it would have been more convenient for them to pick it up when they got to the temple. The money changers would have been that bank slash ATM that I was talking about earlier. Now, there are a couple issues that are here that, that lead us to see this as wickedness, right? We might not recognize it, but Jesus clearly recognized the wickedness that was in God's house. First of all, I want you to take note of the location. Where is this happening? It's happening in the temple, in the house of God. Now, there are specific rules for how things were to be conducted in the Old Testament temple. For us, we might think that there are some certain rules that happen when we come to church. Uh, in the past, these unspoken rules might be, like, pay attention to where you sit. Uh, I've always said that, uh, as a joke, when I go to visit churches uh, to speak, I always just sit on the front row because I know that usually I'm not ever taking someone's spot. <laughs> right? We have these kind of joking, unofficial rules about how we handle it. Maybe in the past there were specific dress codes or things like that. But those are just traditional or cultural rules. The rules that were taking place in the temple were rules that God had laid down for them on specifically how things were to happen. Specifically how the worship was to, to um, be taken care of. And so in the house of God, what we see here is that in other accounts of Jesus cleansing the temple, specifically when he does this a second time during the week of his crucifixion, the other Gospels make it clear that one of the issues was that the people who were in here doing this were Gentiles and that they were in the midst of the temple. And we look at that and we say, well, what does that have to do with anything? But the temple, again, had specific rules about who was allowed in there because of God's holy presence residing there. The Gentiles would have been limited to the court of the Gentiles outside the main parts of the temple. And in that place, the Gentiles were welcome to observe the worship in the temple, but only those who were Jews could participate. Now, Jesus recognized clearly that the Gentiles had moved from outside in. They had made their way into the place of worship. No longer were they outside the temple, but now they have set up shop and business in the place where worship is supposed to be taking place. Gentiles in those days, specifically when we think about location and things like that, would have likely been pagans. So now what we see is that there are pagans in the temple that are intricately and intimately involved in the worship of God. That's problem number one. I also want you to notice the issue of what's happening here. Right? This is the, the money and the animals. Now the money changing would have been for the purpose of changing out regional coins from travelers to the more generally accepted Roman ones. Coins which would have borne pagan images, they would have had pictures of false gods, and would have even had false worship written on them. Things like there is no God besides Caesar. 
And this was considered okay. In fact, in the Jewish non-biblical writings, they said that they preferred Roman coins with pagan names on them. It was not enough that there was no attention to the rules and the order that God had, but now there are actual depictions of false gods in the temple. Again, in this place of worship that is supposed to be reserved for God's holy presence. And finally, what we see is that the worship in the temple had become commercialized. It was a buy-sell, for-profit business. That's not the purpose of the church. We see that there are false gods, there's pagans, there's all of this stuff in the place of holiness, and that worship had become a commercial act. Now, we know from reading the scriptures that it didn't start this way, right? So how did it happen? The song says it is a slow fade. Sin tends to seep in, becomes familiar, begins as a series of small compromises that become bigger and bigger, and over time they become more normal until we don't even recognize it anymore. And like the generations and judges, what seems like radical sin to one generation becomes more normal to the next until it is just an everyday life thing. I would encourage you to think about our life. Think about the issues that we are facing right now in today's age. Things that are so common that previous generations would have been unable to even conceive of. And yet we must recognize that we are not immune. If we love our church just as Christ loves the church, then we have to see where there are problems. We have to be aware. It's only by recognizing the wickedness and the sin that has seeped in that we may root it out. Again, our modern church faces many of the same issues that this temple faced here in our text. Again, unholiness and sin moving from outside in. The world and the culture around us, they dictate so much of what we do. We think about it. The clothes we wear. Maybe the music we listen to. The kinds of vehicles we like. All of these things are are cultural things that we go about in our daily life. The food that we eat. These things are are dictated and it's so much of what happens. And the problem for us as a church is when we allow these cultural things to impact the way that we do church. I'm all for branding. I'm all for marketing our church in a fresh way. I'm all for making use of the technology that we have and leveraging it for the gospel. But if the culture impacts our message to the degree that we change or compromise our message, we are in trouble. We cannot allow the sin and the unholiness out there to determine what we do in here. The pagans, the wicked, the world will not and should not and must not dictate how we worship. And here's the other thing about this, guys. The Jews had become dependent on those things. Such that, you know, if you were a traveler going to the Passover, if these people weren't here, you weren't going to be able to worship. They had grown dependent on the world around them in order to worship God. Let that be a warning for us. Secondly, I mean, again, false gods in the temple. For them, it was on the coins. For us, it is many times in our hearts. How many churches have we heard of who face the trouble of the sacred cow? Right? The tradition that we worship over God. Uh, many of us, we, we recognize that desires lead to great falls. 
Whenever we give the love and the devotion that belongs to God to someone or something else, we are worshiping a false God. Whenever we distort the image of Christ from truth to something else, we're worshiping a false God. And we have to be sure that we allow no false gods and no false doctrine in this church. Jude 4 tells us certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 2.1 says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. You know what we see there? The Second Peter uh, verse specifically tells us that there will be false teachers among us. Not that there might be. Not that uh, maybe, but that there will be. We have to learn the truth well and to devote ourselves to true doctrine in order that we would recognize the wickedness and the false when it arrives. The Bible tells us that false teachers are, are just like wolves in sheep's clothing. And false gospels and false doctrines, they want to elevate man to the level of God and they want to glorify the flesh and make it all about our feelings. So what it says is they pervert grace to sensuality. That means feelings. Whenever we allow our feelings and our comforts and, and the culture of the world and the things that we think about it to dictate our worship, we're in trouble. There's a clothing company that... Rosalind and I have, have bought stuff from in the past, and they have this shirt on it that says, uh, it's got the phrase, sola feels, and the word feels is crossed out, and they put scriptura under it. Now, the solas, again, they mean alone, and the ancient idea of sola scriptura means that God's word alone dictates how we live our life. It is the one thing that we can stake our ground on. It is inerrant, and it is totally truthful, and it is perfect as it is written. But sometimes we allow our feelings to take that place. And when that happens, we are in trouble. We must operate by Scripture, not our feelings. We must operate by Scripture, not our culture. Because those things will lie to us and tell us that everything is bad and awful and terrible, but Scripture reminds us of truth and grace. The Bible tells us our heart is deceitful above all things. Finally, we see that, again, just for them, as worship was commercialized, we too face a tendency on what I call the dilution of worship, right? Watered down. Whenever false doctrine and wickedness seep into our churches, worship suffers. Because false doctrine leads to false worship, and sin impacts it as well. Many people express in church life that they would like a better worship experience. I've never met a single person who said that they weren't looking for better worship in their church. You know what the solution is, honestly? It's not a different style of music, right? Like I, these arguments are all over. You don't need to find a church or a service that has more contemporary or more hymns or a better blend of both. We, we all think that that's going to solve the problems, but I promise you I've been at every one of those kinds of churches and every one of them has problems and every one of them wants better worship. But if you want deep and abiding worship, do you know what you need? You need to learn 
doctrine. Sound, deep doctrine. You need to study God's word well. There's a phrase that's popular among people I know, and it's read more dead guys. We do need to read more dead guys. We need to listen to sermons with depth and conviction and less to people who are just giving us blind encouragement and humor and the things that we want to hear. Because the false and the weak leads to false and weak. We need to accentuate what is good and what is pure and what is true, what is faithful. So I would encourage you, study God's word well. Wickedness seeps in, so we need to be on guard against it, and we need to be ready to drive it back. If we love our church, we need to recognize wickedness. Why? Because if we love our church, we'll have a passion for it as well. That's the second thing that we see. The way that we can love our church, secondly, is to have a passion for God's house. Verses 15 through 17, we see Jesus' passion. He made a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple. He says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade, maybe a den of iniquity in different translations. His disciples remembered that it was written that zeal for his house would consume him. Jesus displayed a passion by showing a passion for holiness. He makes a whip, he flips tables, he pours out coins. This is called the cleansing of the temple, and it's beautiful because the Passover is all about cleansing. The festival that they were observing, it's all about cleansing because in the Jewish festival, the people would cleanse their houses of all unleavened bread because it represents sin and uncleanness. When this happens in Jewish households, they will literally move every piece of furniture They'll move every little thing that might contain or hide a crumb. Because the smallest crumb represents sin in their house. So this idea is that they would cleanse their houses during the Passover because there can be no sin in the house. This is the same approach that Jesus employs here. There cannot be sin in the house of God. He, he, he was driving it out. We can't allow it. He shows zeal, he shows passion, and he didn't show it by, by sitting around and stopping at recognition of wickedness. And this is what a lot, of, a, a lot of America wants to do. We want to recognize that there is a problem, we want to recognize that churches are, are, are having difficulty, and we want to talk about it, and we want to just say things about it, and then never do anything about it. Jesus didn't show passion by talking. Again, many of us, we recognize a problem, but our only passion is in how much we want to talk about it. Jesus showed passion by acting. What did he do? The Bible says he drove out wickedness. He drove them out. Now, the verb there in the Greek is ekbalo. And what it means is it's often used to referring uh, to driving out demons. When Jesus would drive out demons, this is the word that's used. Exorcisms. Just as Jesus cast out demons and unclean spirits from people, so too did he drive out and cast out the wickedness and the sin in God's house. Because if we love the church, we cannot be content for those things to live among us. 
He drove them out. Just as he will drive out all unclean and all unholiness from his fellowship in heaven. So we must drive out the sin in God's house. Well, how do we do that? The Bible tells us to resist the devil and he will flee. Well, how did Jesus resist the devil? When Jesus is tempted, the devil quotes scripture. Did you know that? He just quotes scripture. Uh, Luke 4, 9 through 13, I'll read it to you. It says this. It says, He, the devil, took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written in Scripture, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And, in Scripture, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him and said, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. The devil seeks to mislead Jesus, right, to tempt him by quoting Scripture. And guess what? False teachers will do the exact same thing. They will tell you the Bible, but they will twist it to their own needs. They put their own meanings in it. And instead of the text speaking for itself, they simply use the text and cut and paste verses to say whatever they want which is what the devil was doing in that particular passage. Jesus resists the devil in this time of temptation by quoting Scripture and rightly applying it in context. We drive out false doctrine with sound doctrine. But we won't have sound doctrine unless we study the Word deeply. As your pastor, there's nothing I would love more than to help you study the Word deeply. I can point you to any number of resources. We'll sit down, we'll study it together If you want to know where to start, we can, trust me, we got plenty of stuff. We'll help you get started. We don't need a whip, but we need the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word. Notice, though, when Jesus cast out unclean spirits, right, when he would drive out the demons later in different places, he would say that this kind would only come out through prayer. We need to also be a people of prayer. If we want to see our church fight back and resist wickedness and evil and sin in our midst, then we need to pray as well. Pray that the Lord will root out false teaching and wickedness. Pray that he'll help us to overcome it by his grace and his word. Finally, we drive it out of our church by driving it out of our own hearts. This building doesn't sin. Now, you were sitting over there a minute ago, you might. (laughs) The building doesn't sin. So the sin that's in this building is brought here by people, us. If each of us will pray and study the word and trust in Christ's grace and follow the Holy Spirit, we will grow and be more holy ourselves, which will help the church as a whole. If we don't give the devil a foothold in our own life, then he will not have a foothold in our church. We show passion for God's house by driving out wickedness. And I simply tell you, we do not love our church if we do nothing. We don't. To allow wickedness to continue to exist, to allow false teaching, to allow any of these things is the equivalent of hating our church. 
But I promise you, if we will love our church by focusing in on the word and the truth, then the rest of the problems we have will work themselves out because we'll apply true doctrine to them and we'll grow. Finally, I want to show you that we love God's house. We love the church by recognizing the authority over God's house. And this we see in verses 18 through 22. The Jews say to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? The question that they're asking him was, what authority do you have to do this? What authority do you have? You come in here, you, you made this whip, you drove all the people out. Who put you in charge is essentially the question that is being asked. We need to recognize that Jesus replaced the temple. He's the head of the church, and so we submit to his authority. But when they ask for the reasoning or or what authority he has to do this, he makes this statement. He says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. And their response is, it took us 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to build it in three days. The text makes clear what we know is obvious here. He's not talking about the temple that they are physically in, but he's talking about his body. And they would destroy it. Crucifixion on the cross is the most gruesome and violent death possible. I have a whole thing that I've done in the past on the science of the crucifixion. and uh, it's, it's done in a medical journal. And man, the, it's mind-boggling what he went through. The word excruciating means out of the cross. And even after that most horrific death, he... The death in which his body was physically destroyed. He rose that body, that temple, in three days. And the disciples, they remembered this, and they understood that this is what he was talking about. But for us, what we recognize is that the sign of Jesus' authority is confirmed in the fact that death did not stop him, that even death itself submits to him. Because even when he was on the cross, it says he gave up the ghost. Again, as I've shared with you before, meaning that he was in control even of the moment in which he allowed death to take him. The Bible said all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. And he meant it. It was obvious based on the fact that death, the elements, all things submit to his authority. And we need to realize that Christ is the authority over this church. If we love our church... We are tempted to think that it is our church, that we own it, that we make decisions and we just ask God to bless them. Because that's false. We don't decide, we don't own it, he does. The Bible tells us we were bought with a price. And guys, without Christ, there would be no church to love. But because of his great grace and his mercy, we're able to be saved and are thus able to come together as a body of believers and to worship. I want to share with you the words of Ephesians 1, 18 through 23. Paul here is saying that this is a prayer that he would have for the believers, that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. You may know what is, in the, what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the head over all things, but especially the church. We must remember who our authority is. It is Jesus Christ. He makes the calls we're to follow. Friends, if he was passionate about sin in the temple then, you can be sure that he is passionate about sin in the church now. Where it tells us he never changes. So if we love the church, we need to submit to Christ's authority. The way that we do that is by submitting to his word and doing things the way he calls us to do them. So we love our church by recognizing when there's wickedness. By having a passion for the church, by dealing with that wickedness and pursuing holiness. And by recognizing that Jesus Christ is the authority over the church. But I want to conclude by telling you one thing, and that is that Jesus knows what is in us. Those are in verses 23 through 25. He knows what is in us, and he knows who we are. Verse 23 says that at the Passover, people saw this, and many believed. I mean, could you imagine this kind of thing happening? And I want to say this, if we are a people, if we say that we are a people who are seeking to glorify God and live holy lives and yet do not deal seriously with sin, then we're hypocrites and no one wants any of that. But if we're serious about sin and we do what we say and we apply what we preach, we are genuine and people will see Christ and his holiness and through that they'll be called to repentance. But Jesus knew that many of those people who were following him were following him because of the sign. So the Bible says he did not entrust himself to them. What does that mean? The idea here is that their belief was just an admiration of cool things. They saw something interesting. We're like, we want to see more of that. So let's follow this guy around and wait for something amazing. Jesus knew what was in man. He knows what is in us. So the question that I have for you is the same question, essentially, that is asked of these people who believed in him. Do we have a genuine love for Christ? Do we genuinely love his church, or is it a show because we love something else? I, I want to tell you, I love being around people. I love traditions. I love music. I love going and, and talking about things that are interesting, like Scripture. But if I'm here only for those things and not the Savior behind it, I am lost, and I do not love the church. Because we cannot love the church without truly loving Christ. And we ask the question, do we love him truly? Well, he knows. He knows exactly what is in us. And so my encouragement to you today is that may we pray and ask him to reveal to us what is really in us. Where our true motivations are, where our true love is. 
That if we are true believers, then may we love his church with a passion he would be proud of and a passion for holiness. But if we are not a believer, if we don't truly love him, then my prayer is that we would turn to him today. Throw yourself on his mercy and his grace and let him drive the sin and wickedness from your heart, replacing it with a genuine love for him. Believe in his name. Because if you're following anything else or believing in anything else, you are following a false gospel. Only he can save us and only he can teach us to truly love this church. Let's go to him in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you today and Lord, we do ask that you would move in us. Father, that you would reveal to us what is really in us. Lord, what our true motivation and what our true love is. Lord, as you reveal those things, we pray that you would also call us to exactly what we need. Lord, you would call us to your will that we might fulfill it. Lord, you would help us to love this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. We would love for you to join us on campus for worship Sunday mornings at 1045. We look forward to seeing you. Have a great week.